I appreciate the response from a bunch of you who have uh, expressed the idea that it might be good and profitable for us to have some of these discussions. So I want to start with uh, this series, Targeting Men, a message to men, how to be human, find your identity, gel with purpose, and achieve your life's mission. Idea number one is this, understand what a human being really is. Now, if we draw our narrative from Genesis chapter 1, then Genesis chapter 1 leaves us, and chapter 2, leaves us with this idea, what is a human being? A human being is primarily made in the image of God, being made in God's image. It's the first ever Bible idea about humans to come to us. And I think if you actually dwell on this deeply and reflect on what it says to us, it says some interesting things to you, which become a kind of magnetic north, which helps you orient yourself and orient your masculinity to a particular direction. When, when you know, like any compass point, there there are innumerable directions you can go, but uh, really, the true north is the one you want to head to. And actually, there's something inside a person that resonates deeply with this idea. You're made in the image of God. The Hebrew word for image is the word selem. It means reflection. And it gets its meaning from uh, the ancient world where a king who would have a vast empire wouldn't uh, necessarily come to that town and uh, sit in that town. But people had to know, well, who's in charge of this? Who's the king around here? And so the king would put a statue of themselves somewhere in the city. And when you entered that city, when you went to the city square or whatever it was, you would see this image, this selem. And that would say to you, aha, when I see that reflection, when I see that image, that structural recreation, now I know who's in charge around here. When I know who's in charge, I know what's supposed to be done. I know what are the rules for operation. I I know whose territory I'm in. And so the first thing we learn about a man is that one of the things a man should do is a man should say, I'm here as a reflection of the creator of the universe. I'm here as a representation of the creator of the universe. The other way that you might find this word image in the ancient world, selem in the Hebrew, is uh, in an ancient temple where an ancient temple would have an image of a particular God set up inside that temple. And you'd go in there, you'd see the particular image there and you'd know, aha, I know whose sacred space I'm living in now. I know what the policies and principles are of the place. I know how to roll because I can see from that uh, who's in charge. So think about what that says about being a man that you are a reflection of the creator of the universe. Now, of course, as, as men, we have just so many desires. They're emotional, they're biological, they, they drive us, uh, they're social, uh, they're aspirational, they're motivational. And so we often reflect on being a man and, and, and we do reflect things, but we sometimes run the danger of reflecting things any old way we want. We just do whatever comes most naturally to us, which is a huge danger to us and to others. So let's talk about this idea of being made in God's image. Here's the first thing. You are designed to reflect. You're designed to reflect. You're designed to reflect what you know. The idea of reflecting an image means somehow you are within line of sight of ground zero of the image. You're not the idea. You're not the ideal. You're a reflection of the ideal. And therefore, you should be within line of sight of that ideal so that you are able to receive that and then reflect it onwards. That's kind of the way human life works. And as a man or as a human being, regardless of our gender, uh, that's something we're hugely open to because the truth is we do reflect what we see, what we know, what we experience, what we gaze on. And that gazing can be physically looking or it can be ideation. It can be mentally gazing. It can be fantasizing or imagining or focusing or deeply thinking. And we will reflect and our lives will show we'll become the byproduct of all of that gazing 
that we do. You reflect what you know, you reflect what you experience, you reflect what you see. Jesus, as the archetypal best human, shows us this because he said, I only do. When people sought an explanation from him, Jesus, why are you doing everything that you're doing? He said, I only do what I see my father doing. He reflected what he saw and he reflected what he knew. Now, this is interesting because your biology actually uh, underscores this in interesting ways. What was fascinating in the psych world was the discovery of mirror neurons. And mirror neurons, uh, they form a biological map of the world that you live in, the world that you observe. It imprints upon your mind and then upon your biology other people's behaviors. And this is where empathy comes from. Empathy comes from mirror neurons, so they say. And mirror neurons mean that when I see somebody uh, fall off a bike and bam, crunch right between the legs, my instant response is not dissimilar to their instant response. Oh, and you've all seen those videos on YouTube where when somebody, you know, falls on a tightrope or a bike and uh, the crown jewels are crushed, you see that we all have the same male response. Oh, and that's because the mirror neurons are acting. We're seeing what they're doing and now what they're doing, the experience that we're gazing upon is recreated somewhat in our own head, meaning we don't have to feel it to feel it, if you know what I'm saying. What we gaze on shapes us. What we gaze on actually is capable of reproducing itself in us. Now, that straight away says to us that we've got to be super careful about what we gaze on. We've got to be super careful. Some things you can't help seeing and some things you can't help seeing will just impact you fleetingly, like someone having a bike accident, <laughs> although it could also traumatize you for life. Um, but then there's the areas where you shape yourself by gazing intently and intentionally, where you're spending a lot of time, a lot of repetition, investing a lot of resource or emotion, particularly gazing in reality or just through ideation mentally, gazing, gazing, gazing on stuff. And what you gaze on shapes you. It shapes your brain. It shapes your personality. It wires who you are becoming. You're not a fixed entity. You're always changing. The second thing is this, that the way you see God is how you reflect him. If what I gaze on shapes me, the way I see God, even if I never physically see God, I'm not one of those lucky people that's had some vision like Isaiah or Ezekiel did. Um, but, but the way that you see God, when you see God, when you think about God, devotionally or not. Maybe you're an atheist and you don't have anything to do with God, but that's still a concept of God. And that concept of God still shapes who you are and how you reflect the God that you don't see. And that's why for me, so many times I've dealt with people sat right here in this office where I'm filming this and people who are breathless atheists at the same time are reflecting the God they don't believe in. In other words, their breathless atheism has left a vacuum in who they're supposed to reflect. And now what's the next thing they have? A massive identity crisis because they don't know who they are or how to be human. And I wonder if that's often linked to the fact that because they don't have a source to reflect from and therefore they have a massive vacuous gaping hole in who they should be as a human. Uh, I'm sure some people would push back on that, but the truth is the people I deal with all the time, especially the ones who I've seen come to faith from breathless atheism, one of the most common refrains they say to me is, now I can't believe how much identity I have, how much meaning and purpose to life has, the, the zest of life is back. The way you see God is the way you reflect him. You reflect what you see. This is so powerful, it shapes you. If you see God as some angry, wrathful, vengeful being, then you're going to have the tendency to not only be afraid of God and, and therefore fly, flee from God and run from God, again, cutting that gazing line of sight, which means now you're open to reflecting a whole bunch of other things. But if you don't do that, let's say that for some reason you've been conditioned by culture or religion or fear or whatever to, to, to stay in line of sight of this vengeful, wrathful, angry 
punitive God, then you are going to be shaped by the reflection of that God that you see. And your personality is in danger then of becoming more angry, wrathful, violent, punitive and vengeful. And boy, don't we know religious people who are all a lot like that. Now, it should be noted at this point in time that just because people see God that way, that doesn't mean that's what God's like. Remember, it's the God that you see, not whether you're actually seeing the real God or not, whether you're seeing God as he actually is. This shapes your biology. Deep in your brain, you have the ACC, the anterior cingulate cortex. And let me just check my notes. This is the part of your brain and it governs empathy, love, compassion, and your sense of right or wrong. The anterior cingulate cortex, ACC. It governs compassion, empathy, love, and your sense for right or wrong. Now, I want you to listen to this because when they've done brain studies on people, this is what they've found. That the more you gaze or are exposed to anger, wrath, punitive, fear, anxiety, dysfunction, then that part of your brain deactivates slightly. It begins to dial down. It begins to shut down. In fact, it can get inflammation in that part of your brain, which impedes its function. And then what that means is that the consequent reaction to this exposure to fear, anxiety, wrath, violence, punitiveness, what it does is it actually impedes how you're able to empathize with people, how you're able to show love. It impedes your judgment and feelings between right and wrong, and it impedes that compassionate center of who you are. Meaning that gazing on anger, wrathful, violence, punitiveness, judgment, condemnation, all these things, it actually impedes your ability to be as fully human as you could actually be. And then they found this, that the more you're exposed to love and goodness and compassion, then the more that anterior cingulate cortex in your life grows and is healthy, experiences less inflammation, fires better, governs other parts of your life that maybe counteract that, like tempers and all sorts of stuff. And what that means is that you can become a easily, more easily, become a more compassionate, loving, empathic person by being exposed to that. Now, here's something crazy that uh, was found by... Yakir Kaufman and a bunch of people from a university that he worked at in Canada, where they did a study on how does your concept of God, how does your spirituality affect your biology and your brain? And this is what they found, that if you gaze on, see or believe in, devoted to a God who is a God of compassion, love, justice, righteousness, peace, etc., then the anterior cingulate cortex in your life will grow and be more healthy. But if your God is violent, wrathful, judgmental, condemning, criticizing, frowny, then the anterior cingulate cortex in your life actually dials down, its function is impeded, and it fires off the limbic system in your brain, the emotions, the fight or flight response, anxiety, the, the, the predator response, I oh, know something's attacking me. It fires off that, raising cortisols and all sorts of chemicals in your system that impede healthy function and actually impede your ability to be as compassionate, empathic, and healthy and loving as you could be. And that's a scary thing to think that before you've done anything else, just the way that you see God affects your very humanity. It affects your humaneness. I think that's an amazing thing. The way you see God will be the way you reflect him and human biology and neurology backs that up. The second area is this, is you have this thing in your brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. <laughs> it governs reasoning, strategy, and planning, decision-making. 
Now, here's what they've found, that any type of negative mindset, anything that uh, raises negative emotion, anxiety, anger, unforgiveness, bitterness, rage, what would be considered to be unhealthy mindsets? Uh, unhealthy mindsets impede this, and they impede the function of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And what that means is that you become worse at decision-making. You become worse at critical thinking. You become worse at correct judgment. Um, and, and, and therefore, Negative mindsets actually, rather than making you wiser, they make you more foolish. Now, this is important because in the same study, Yakir Kaufman and his cronies from the university, his homies from the university, uh, what they found at Baycrest in Canada was that the same thing happens, that the way you see God affects the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex as well, which means you can have a view of God that makes you dumber, or you can have a view of God that makes you more wise, makes you wiser. And and that's purely dependent on the line of sight you maintain as a human, because listen, you're designed and made to reflect, and you will reflect whatever you're gazing on. And when it comes to spirituality with regards to God, who is God to you? Because having the wrong idea about God, Not seeing God as who God truly is, a good, wise, gracious, loving, kind king. Seeing God in other ways actually can impede the function of your life, and it actually has personal ramifications for you. Brain imaging studies. Let me read you the quote. Brain imaging studies have demonstrated that the more more time a person spends in communion with the God of love, the more developed their interior cingulate cortex becomes. Not only that, the person experiences decreases in stress hormones blood pressure, heart rate, and risk of untimely death. The more time spent contemplating an angry, wrathful, fear-inducing deity, the more damage to the brain and the more rapidly one's health can decline, leading to an early death. Just think about that. That really is an amazing medical fact. Not only that, but the fear and anxiety associated with these views of God stimulate the limbic system, that's your emotional center in your brain, where fight-or-flight response lives, and they cause inflammation of various parts of the brain. And this elevated inflammation causes problems. Let me tell you what those problems are. When you have these negative mindsets about God, but then even about anything else, if God's not part of your picture, just these other negative mindsets, they cause inflammation in the brain. And this inflammation has drastic ramifications for you. This inflammation sends a signal to the DNA in your brain cells. And they then send a signal to the genes that govern this thing called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which you could think about like fertilizer for your brain cells, a a, a chemical uh, that actually fertilizes and optimizes the production and maintenance and, and function of brain cells. And these negative mindsets and this inflammation in your brain over the long term, it sends a message to your DNA, which suppresses the genes that produce that fertilizer in your brain. And your brain says, well, then we won't keep making that fertilizer. And if that happens, if your brain chemistry changes and stops producing brain-derived neurotrophic factor, then actually you open yourself up to a world of problems. The suppression of those genes and the reduction of brain-derived neurotrophic factor is definitely associated with reduced brain mass, and that is is associated with severe clinical depression and other pathologies of emotion and personality. So it's not just your view of God that affects this. It's really whatever you're focusing on, gazing on, dwelling on, either actually, like let's say you're a victim of severe trauma, tragedy, and injustice, and if you keep ideating over those things, then it keeps reproducing itself internally to you, and it changes the way you live. But even if you're not a victim of that, even if it comes to spirituality, the way you view God, that affects your entire brain chemistry and the way you will live out into the future. Why are we saying all this? Because clearly 
You are designed, Genesis says, to reflect God. And the best case for a flourishing life is being in touch with that God, being conceptually within line of sight of that good, gracious, wise king called God and living out, receiving that reflection and giving that reflection away to other people. That's what Genesis opens with to teach us one of the keys to the flourishing life is getting this whole reflection correct. As a human, you're a reflecting machine. You imitate from a very young age. You have mirror neurons that teach you to learn through imitation and observation and then reflect what you're seeing. And then the funny thing is your brain can't tell the difference most of the time between what you're actually seeing or what you're deeply focused on, meaning that fantasy and reality can create the same realities internally to you and your personality. So therefore, if we think about that for a second, what should we do? Well, we should know God as he actually is and we should know him through Jesus. We should know God through Jesus, then we should seek to reflect God like Jesus. We should look at who Jesus is and what Jesus did, and we should seek to be those who say, I'm keeping Jesus in my line of sight so I can shine like that to the rest of the world. This is beyond the cliche of just wearing a WWJD bracelet or a bumper sticker, but actually deeply thinking about the man Jesus and how the masculinity and the manhood of Jesus is a great reflection for me to gaze on and then spit back out in the way I reflect my life toward other people, knowing him as he actually is. The alternative to this, of course, are distortions. We can have distortions in our image of God. These can be lies about God. They can be competing wrong ideas about God. They can be untruths about God. They can be things I've concocted out of my own emotion rather than have come through illumined revelation. I can be have idols, and idols are simply falling for or falling in love with created things. And the biggest danger for men is the creative things that they fall in love with can often become the work of our own hands as well as a society or as an individual. We can fall in love with other things and then start to reflect that. Don't you think it's funny that there's direct correlation between the shape of a woman's body and the shape of a Porsche or a Ferrari? And the idea is that both of those things stimulate in a man what he most seeks and desires, which means that's why they're so saleable commodities. Um, But it's about what we gaze on. It shapes our personality and desires, and then we reflect it back out to the world. So we've got to be careful of distortions. One of the scariest stories about distortion comes from the people of Israel in the Exodus period. While Moses is up the mountain getting the Ten Commandments from God, the people are down making and creating a golden calf. And the scariest thing about that process of making and creating the golden calf is they didn't say, we don't want Yahweh anymore, let's make a calf instead. They actually said, we don't know where Moses is, let us make ourselves a golden calf, reproducing the religion that they gazed on and seen from Egypt, and they made a golden calf. But here's the scary thing, they called that golden calf Yahweh. They worshipped it saying, what great things Yahweh has done for us. In other words, they had a competing wrong, different, deceptive, illusory idea of who God really was, that golden calf which they built with their own hands. They fell in love with and worshipped that all the time, having no idea that the thing they were gazing on was not actually corresponding with the name that they call it. There's a real Yahweh out there to gaze on and to reflect, but they had completely lost focus on who and what that really was. So how about you? What are you gazing on? What are you making? Are you sure you've got the right concept here? That's something we should think about. So here here are the take home. Why are we talking about this? Well, here's the first question. Number one, what are you reflecting? What are you reflecting on and therefore what's reflecting through you in life? What is your life a reflection of? Have a look at it, the outcome, the fruit, the, the, the result of interactions with you. What is the result of that? Is it simply a reflection of other things that you've gazed on, pathologies or trauma or abuses that you've experienced, lust, desires, just things that are already out there in the made world? Or are you reflecting this transcendent being called God that shines through you out to the world? If you've suffered abuse or trauma and deep dysfunction, then 
you and I, we need to attend with extra care to these things because the truth is that if we've experienced any of that stuff, then we've gazed on that a long time in our lives. And sometimes it comes back to us in waves in the depths of the night or in other things you have experiences, you know, this stupid idea that everything's got to have a trigger warning now, but it's not so far from the truth because things can trigger deeply implanted concepts and memories that have become life guiding principles for you, things that have set who you are in your trajectory in life because of past experiences that, that things in life trigger or that shape things in life because those are the things you've gazed on. Those are the things you've been shaped by. So they're what you're going to reflect out to humanity. This is why you see in counseling and therapy, you often run across this saying that uh, the abused becomes the perpetrator. And that's actually statistically not true for all of those people that, that uh, over time, less and less people in a family line tend to be abusers. But anyway, for the, for the case of the argument that the abuser, the abused becomes the abuser simply because what's been reflected to them is something they then reflect out. Now, the truth is that you and I are hugely influential. We have people in our lives that we impact through what we reflect. And so therefore, here's the question. If people are impacted by what and who I reflect, what is that impact like? It's a huge motivation and a mission for me in life to say, man, I better get my reflecting right because other people are affected by my my reflecting, not just as a leader or a church pastor, but as a father, as a lover, as a friend, as a mate, as a mentor to people, as a, as a person. What are you reflecting? How is it impacting people? A reflecting being, here's the question, what source should you intentionally go to to shape that reflection? What's the original that you're reflecting? There are good ones and there are bad ones, but maybe making God seem in Jesus part of that mix is not a bad idea. It's a great starting point. Christian theology says this, that humans didn't really ever catch an accurate, fully comprehensive, defining view of God until they saw Jesus and he came along and showed us. And now we can know God by seeing Jesus and knowing who he is. Questions, what's your source? What are you being shaped into? What are you being shaped by? What are you reflecting? And how could that change? Well, for Genesis, lesson one in how to be a human is be humane by going to the right source and understanding you're designed and created with a vacuum in you that says, I want to reflect something and therefore go to the right source to get that reflection. Biology says that's actually healthiest for you to do that in certain ways versus all of the competing ways that are out there. And if you do, not only is it healthier for you, uh, it's healthier for those who gaze on you and then mirror what your reflection is too. So just through interactions with you, people can then be helped to have a flourishing life through the person that you are.